I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Laura Lippman joins us to talk about her brilliant new novel, Sunburn. Laura Lippmann has been awarded every major prize in crime fiction. Since the publication of What the Dead Know, each of her hardbacks has hit the New York Times bestseller list. A recent recipient of the first ever Mayer's Prize, she lives in Baltimore, New Orleans and New York City. And Laura's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Sunburn. Laura, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. How would you describe Sunburn? I often describe Sunburn as even though I kind of hate this phrase, but it really is the bastard child of Ann Tyler and James and Kane. The Kane is easy to see, I think. The postman always drink twice, double indemnity noir. I think fewer people without being told would see Ann Tyler as an influence, but there was a book called Ladder of Years about a woman who abandons her family on a beach vacation. And it's an Ann Tyler novel. It's funny, it's warm, it's compassionate, it's very human scale and insightful. But that idea is stark. The idea of walking away from your family on a beach vacation, especially if the children are younger, abandoning a family of teens is different than walking away from a two or a three-year-old. But I, I was always struck by that. And I wish I knew the exact moment I had the idea because I usually do. But in this case, it just sort of grew and grew and it was there in the back of my mind and I was thinking about Kane and rereading Postman Always Rings Twice and the central idea is Postman Always Rings Twice but the person passing through is a woman. How does the story change if the drifter is female and the person who's stuck behind the stove is a man? And this is Polly or Pauline, your protagonist and I'll raise it now as you've already mentioned it She's the person that's left not one, but two children in separate situations. And I think that is quite a, a brave thing to do. Obviously, you know, once you've read the book, one might have a slightly different take on it, of course. However, um, we're not going to give away what happens. So just to talk about just that decision of, of, of setting out with a protagonist where one of the only things we know about her is that she's left two children. And most of the men in the book who describe her describe her as unnatural. It's a word that comes up again and again. I teach writing. I've been teaching for quite some time in a program that was started by Dennis Lehane and his alma mater. It's not for students who are currently enrolled in the school, but it's a workshop that people pay to attend during a week in January every year. 
And over the years I've been teaching writing to students, I've said, if you see something in your books that feels like either a hole in the plot or something that people are going to get stuck on, the biggest mistake you can make is to try to paper over it or deflect from it. And I said, if you have a problem in your story, I suggest you run right at it and confront it and understand that the problem can also be the heart of the story. And so the heart of the story is, who is this woman? Who does that? Could anyone possibly ever feel any compassion or empathy for the woman who has made this decision? And in a lot of ways, that's sunburn. That's the story. Can you see things from Polly's side? She's a tough cookie. And she's a very silent character. I'm a big talker. I mean, I just gab and gab and gab and gab and gab. And I'd come off writing this book, Wild Lake, where the main character was so much more like me, a big talker, a lawyer, a brooder, just thinking, 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 analyzing, analyzing. And to create this character, Polly, who is a person of few words but many actions, and who has very set ideas about what she needs and how she's going to get it. It was enormous fun, first of all. I mean, Polly was an interesting person to be inside of during the 12 months or so that I worked on this book. And, you know, again, it was like, okay, yeah, that is unnatural. Who does that? Who is this woman? That becomes the story of Sunburn. She is an amazing character. And what I'd like to, I was going to say, tell me where she comes from, but I guess more specifically, let's talk about what she's running from. Well, it's 1995. And I chose 1995 for reasons that are very spoilerish. I did not choose 1995 because it was a year before cell phones and Google. But when I realized that help. was true, it was like, oh, this is great. I'm now writing a novel set in 1966, so one sees I only want to go backwards in some ways. But 1995 is a very different era. In some ways, it's I like to call it the last good year to disappear. The world is going to change very rapidly in the late 90s. Polly has walked out of one marriage, and we find out relatively quickly that there was certainly a relationship before that one, and that one had its own dark ending, I guess I'll say. She's running from a lot of things, and the question is, what is she running toward? What is her plan? I think it's pretty apparent from the moment we get inside Polly's head, which is the second chapter of the book, that she has a plan, she's just not sharing it. And you know, as a writer, there's this concern I like to think about, how much am I cheating this? If I'm inside Polly's point of view, but she's not letting me see everything, is that a cheat? And I don't think so in this book because the plan was made before we meet her. So now she's just going through the paces and she doesn't second guess herself very much. Like, nope, this is what I'm going to do. But she is capable of changing plans, of saying, okay, then I'll do this instead of that. That was unexpected, but I can improvise, as you, if you will. She shows quite a talent for improvisation in this book. So, you know, she comes out of a time and a place. She comes from a family that has ill-prepared her for the world in some ways. 
not unkind people, not bad people, just, matter of fact, they were very loving parents, but they didn't prepare her well for the world she entered, a world in which, as a woman, she had very little power, very few options, and she saw herself as being someone who was cornered, and there's only one thing to well, there are two things to do when you're cornered. You can accept it or you can fight your way out. And Polly definitely chose to fight her way out. And then our second protagonist in the story, second main character, is Adam. Tell us who he is. Adam has a few secrets of his own, but Adam is someone who, he's a very principled man. He's a decent person. No one would say Adam was unnatural. The things we know about him is that he was raised by loving parents in the West Coast of the United States, in the San Francisco area, during the the Beat era. And his parents, you you glean a little bit, not a lot, but, you know, his mother painted, his father played a musical instrument. There's a reference to Adam being a participant in a very real study at Stanford University called the Marshmallow Study, which gets a lot of criticism now as having been sort of classist at its roots, and perhaps we shouldn't take too much from it. But the marshmallow experiment centered on determining children's outcomes through their ability to wait for reward. They would be given a marshmallow and told if you could wait a certain amount of time without eating it, you would get two marshmallows. And they followed up with these children over many years and reached certain conclusions that are now controversial. But it would have been utterly plausible for a young Adam to have been the kid who was in that and who would have asked, as my own daughter asked, what do I have to do to get three marshmallows? My daughter really did ask me that when she was seven or so. And I was like, like, are you looking in mommy's computer while she's writing? Because that would not be good. Anyway, so Adam, he can cook. He can be silent and still, which is one of Polly's great qualities. He's watchful. And he's very interested in this redheaded woman who's passing through the same town he's passing through. And yes, Adam does seem like a decent guy. He's a great character. And certainly the rest of the men in and around Polly's life are monsters. So Adam is far better. And yet there is also this lie. They start to develop a relationship in the story. And, you know, that works for both of them. But there is at the centre of it a lie from Adam's side. And what I think is great about the book is you keep forgetting that. Like, I was rooting for the relationship and having to remind myself, but he's lying to it. And remind yourself you're reading a novel in the noir tradition. Mm-hmm. When I was touring for this novel in the United States, I would say in my talks that almost everything past chapter two is a spoiler. I said, on the other hand, if you are reading this novel and you do not instantly understand that Adam and Polly are going to become a couple, then I fear for you. I'm like, don't don't drive yourself home and sign over power of attorney to someone else, because you should just get that that's the kind of book this is, that it's going to be a seduction. It's not going to be... This is one way in which is very different from Postman Always Rings Twice and some other noir classics, is that they're, the consummation of the relationship is sort of delayed again and again. There's a moment where it feels like it's about to happen, and she says no. And then there's a moment where you feel like it's about to happen, and he says no. And it is literally around page 70, which in a book that's under 300 pages is a long time to wait for the fiery passions to ignite. And if you know Postman Always, 
I mean, one of the things I love about Cain is he doesn't even bother to explain or justify. The characters see each other and post when always drinks twice, they're having sex within minutes. Double indemnity. Oh, yeah, I'll kill your husband for you. I mean, it, it just, it's a given that these amazing attractions exist. And I like those stories very much, but because they both have secrets and because Polly in particular would be very wary about any man, I wanted to play it out as more of a slow burn and to watch what happens as they, it's almost like a romance novel in that, oh, first they don't get together because of this, and then it's because of that, and then it's because of this reason, till the, I hope the reader is is anxious for the consummation as Polly and Adam eventually become. Um, can we talk a bit more about the other stories that are an influence on this book? And I mean that quite literally, because not only, have, as you've already discussed, you know, you're, you're sort of referencing some classic noirs, but so does Polly in her schemes. Well, well, again, you know, this is actually something that's been on my mind for most of my writing career. It was an observation made to me by one of my best friends, uh, London-based writer Lauren Milne Henderson, who also writes under the name Rebecca Chance. And she said in our early days when we were going to crime conferences together, she said, isn't it odd how many detective novels seem to exist in a world in which no one's ever heard of detective novels? Like, if you were a private eye, would you not know about Raymond Chandler? Would you not, if you're a reporter as I was, you know about His Girl Friday, and it's it's something that is meaningful to you. So again, I don't want my characters, I don't like to lean on pop culture. I don't want to use that shorthand of, well, I'm just going to mention this fashionable television show and it'll do a lot of heavy lifting for me. But I do want my characters to be aware of influences. So Polly is not someone who would have automatically been drawn to these kind of stories. So there has to be a backstory. I mean, the character who learns how to be, if you will, through reading and watching film, that's a pretty sturdy, evergreen type in fiction in the 20th and 21st century. So Polly's just another one of those characters who she finds a way out through first the movies she sees almost by accident and then the book she reads because she's so interested in these movies she stumbled on and that's how most of the people i know are on some level and so looking at some of those i mean and particularly uh double indemnity i'm thinking of at the center of this story i mean there are numerous insurance scams going on in the story but there's one particular that some of the men some of the antagonists in in Polly's life were involved in and without going into the details of what that was I just wanted to talk about whether or not that was a real thing whether that was based on oh yes stories Uh, the viatical if you're referring to the viaticals that was definitely something that happened to the extent that they became fodder for scams I can't predict but you know there's probably you know, like you have the rule of physics, things fall apart. I think the rule of human nature is anything that exists with money then becomes a scam. There's a scam version of everything that has anything to do with, with money and insurance. So what is that viaticals thing? Again, okay. Explain for the listeners. So a viatical, and it's something that became very popular during the first wave of the HIV epidemic in the United States which is it's almost like a reverse life insurance. And for people who needed cash, but obviously couldn't get life insurance, 
you could sell a policy on that person to a third party who would then cash it in. I'm explaining it poorly because I'm so far out from my research, I can't access all the technical details. That's sort of the the dilemma forever of me is that I wrote this in 2000 and well, I finished it by February of 2017. And since then, I've been immersed in the world of 1966 Baltimore and can talk more about I could tell you the weather on a mistake given day in 1966. My grandfather was an insurance agent, and I've always been fascinated by insurance. Insurance is one of those things that people are so negative about. It's like one of the stereotypes. I mean, one of the reasons I love double indemnity is because it he's not the hero, but at least Walter Neff is at, you know, it's like, yes, he can be the, you know, he can be the protagonist of this novel, and his clever boss can be the person who makes him see how he's gone wrong. You know, my, I like insurance. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think most jobs are interesting, and we make a mistake of sort of looking past the people who have what we think of as boring jobs. I don't think anyone has a truly boring job. One of the funny reactions I got when this book first began making its way out into the world, and it was read by a lot of my girlfriends, is there's a character in the book named Irving, who is, in fact, an insurance broker and a landlord. Not a nice guy, but people really liked him. They're sort of like, well, I kind of liked Irving. I know I'm not supposed to, but there was something about Irving. And I think what it was is that it's this idea that the people we look past, the people who we glaze over when we meet them at a party, hi, what do you do? I own a small insurance agency. No one wants to talk to you. No one's like, oh, tell me all about that. That must be fascinating. I liked Irving, but I think it's because Irving's, I mean, there are some real... Evil people in this book. Irving's really just out of his depth. Yeah, Irving, you know, Irving makes a mistake. He makes a mistake that brings very bad people into his life and feels that that's very unfair. You know, it's like, well, I made a terrible mistake. I did a horrible thing, but I didn't deserve this. A lot of different people in Sunburn are saying that to themselves. I won't even enumerate all the characters because... In some cases, it's a surprise, but most of the characters in Sunburn have done bad things, and most of them would tell you, yeah, but I don't deserve to live with that forever. They would all have a rationalization for why they should be allowed to move on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laura Lippman, and we're talking about her latest novel, Sunburn. And Laura, I do want to talk slightly about some of the other characters, but more in general in that what I think is great about this novel, again, is that there's lots of incidental characters that nonetheless are incredibly well-drawn and interesting and little sort of pen portraits. And I'm thinking of, like, you know, like Sue the Private Eye, for instance, who there's basically a chapter about and then we never hear from again. So but that was a great character. thing I stumbled on while writing this book. And I'm sure other people, I'm sure there are other books like this. And a matter of fact, I know of other books like this, although I don't think I had read anything like this until after I wrote it, if that makes sense. But I never was thinking, oh, I'm doing something highly original or something that's never been done before because it would be folly as a novelist to think you've ever invented anything. But I had certainly never tried to write a novel before where someone shows up, has point of view for a chapter and disappears. Although I did it very glancingly in an early novel called Every Secret Thing, where there's a character who describes a police raid, and it's only two pages, and the character isn't even named. It was unusual, and it's so close to the climax of the book, I don't think most people even noticed. But in this book, I started to think about, well, why not? I don't know. Como no? Why can't I do this? And I started with Sue the Private Eye, who... Again, people love Sue. People talk to me about Sue all the time. I've had people say, could Sue be a serious character? Can you write about Sue? I'm like, maybe. (laughs) So this is like a funny pulling back the curtain thing. My child goes to a school in the neighborhood. And although it's a, a public school, which in the States means it's, you know, a state school and free, we're always raising money. And I had donated the right to be a character in one of my books to the school auction. And my neighbor, Bob Riley, like lives a couple of doors down from me, won it. And I actually think I forgot for like a year or two. And then I was like, Bob's like, when am I going to be in the book? And I had to write this scene in a video store. And I said, isn't it more interesting if it's not from a main character's point of view, but we get to see it from the video store. So the video store clerk has this one-off. One of the chapters I most enjoyed writing is a chapter, and I'll be vague because it's a spoiler, but there's a character that we meet only once, and she's caring for her parents in the wake of an unexpected tragedy. And that chapter moves the plot forward not at all, or maybe there's one line that's significant in that entire chapter in terms of the story, but I was just enamored of the idea that everybody has a story. Again, I go back to this again and again. I'm going to get very emotional right now and tear up. Um, Gosh, two weeks ago, my very dear friend Rob Hyacin was one of the people who was shot and killed Mm. in a newspaper office in Maryland by someone who long had a grudge at the paper and just showed up one day with a shotgun and began shooting people. The people he killed weren't even connected to the grudge he had. 
My friend Rob and I were colleagues at the Baltimore Sun and along with a third colleague, Lisa Pollack. I described this as team quotidian, team random, which is there were people who worked at the paper who, if you told them, open up the phone book, point a pencil at a name and go write a story about that person, they would have considered that a death sentence. Like they thought that was stupid and not possible. But Rob and Lisa and I believed that every person had a story. And if you were a really good reporter, you could find it. We One summer, cause summer would be so dead. Baltimore summers are hot and long. Everyone goes away. There's nothing to write about. So we huddled together and we created this project called Greetings from Baltimore. And we just traveled around the country and went to other places that all they had in common was that they had the name Baltimore for whatever reason. And the trick was, can you find a story? And, you know, I went to a Los Angeles flop house, a place where people who are basically one level up from homeless paid for their rooms by the night. It's called the Hotel Baltimore. And I wrote about the men I met in the lobby. And my friend Rob went to Baltimore Street in Las Vegas. And my friend Lisa went to a place called Baltimore, Georgia, where there was actually a business that sold people dirt to eat, which was all very odd. So, you know, I bring this now into my novels, which is, I mean, I know I'm making all the characters up and they'll be as interesting as I want them to be. But I just really liked that idea that everybody's a part of the story and that these little windows, instead of slowing the book down and maybe people thinking, what's going on? Why am I reading this? I found in this case from the feedback that I got, because there is a teeny nugget of the story in all of these one-off chapters. You learn something from Sue, the private eye who's hired to find the runaway wife. You learn something from the video store clerk because he sees a pattern that someone else should have seen and never did. Like, oh, well, that person really likes fire, don't they? You even learn something from this one chapter I described from the woman taking care of her shell-shocked parents. It's all there and it's all coming together. My MO has always been that readers are very, very smart. I don't know why you would write novels if you didn't think people were smart, which isn't to say all people are smart, but that I write for the smartest people in the room, the people who can put it together, who might guess the ending. I don't care if they guess. I'm not trying to be the cleverest. I'm not trying to have the twist that you never saw coming. I'm kind of trying to have the twist that you did see coming. But my hope is that people will be so invested in the characters of my novel that they say, what are they going to do when they figure this out? You talked about the lie that Adam carries. The reader finds it out pretty quickly. What is Polly going to do when she finds out? What is Adam going to do when he finds out certain facts about Polly? What is Irving going to do when he finds out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? To me, that's the true suspense in the novel. You mentioned Baltimore, and there's there's a lot of crime stories set in big cities, obviously, and not least Baltimore. Um, this story is set in a, a fictional small town, Belleville, in Delaware. And of course, uh, you know, a story like The Postman Always Rings Twice is is set in, you know, small town America. Mm-hmm. What is it about small towns? People know your business. People are watching you. People are gossiping about you, almost certainly. If that's an unfair stereotype to small towns, I apologize. I admit I've never lived in a small town. I certainly reported on a lot of very small towns as a reporter early in my career living in Texas. My mother lives in a tiny, tiny beach community in Delaware. She lives north of the town 
in a development where there are maybe two dozen houses. So, you know, people really know each other. They see things, they observe things. I think the main draw, though, was it was so much fun to build my own town, to be able to say it has this, it has that. And some people have said, oh, I know it's that town. I'm like, no, not exactly. Last summer, the book done and sort of off with the publishers, you know, going through the phases at the point where I don't even think I could have changed a word. My daughter and I were driving through Delaware and took an unusual route. And I saw a bar that looked so much like the hi-ho of my imagination. I was like, wow, I thought I made that up. But, you know, my mother lives in Delaware on on the shore. I live in Baltimore. It's a three hour drive. And you drive through a lot of small towns. You drive past the chicken farms. You drive past the prisons, which are big employers there. I mean, it's basically poultry and prisons. Those are the big employers. And to make up one's own town is like being back with your Lego set and building little houses and creating a landscape. It was enormous fun. That's it for me. Can I get you to share a little bit of the book? Oh, absolutely. Before we finish. Starting with the first page, because pretty much everything is a spoiler after that. It's the sunburned shoulders that get him, pink, peeling. The burn is two days old, he gauges, earned on Friday, painful to the touch yesterday. Today, an itchy soreness that's hard not to keep fingering, probing, as she's doing right now in an absent-minded way. The skin has started sloughing off. Soon those narrow shoulders won't be so tender. Why would a redhead well into her thirties make such a rookie mistake? And why is she here? Sitting on a bar stool, 45 miles inland, in a town where strangers seldom stop on a Sunday evening. Belleville is the kind of place where people are supposed to pass through, and soon they won't even do that. They're building a big bypass so the beach traffic won't have to slow down for the speed trap on the old main street. He saw the construction vehicles idle on Sunday on his way in. Places like this bar-slash-restaurant, the Hi-Ho, are probably going to lose what little business they have. Hi-Ho. H-I-G-H. A misprint. Was it supposed to be hi-ho, H-E-I-G-H? And if so, was it for the seven dwarfs heading home from the mines at day's end, or for the lone ranger riding off into the sunset? Neither one makes much sense for this place. Nothing about this makes sense. So I've been talking to Laura Lippman. We've been talking about her latest novel, Sunburn which is out now from Faber and Faber. Laura, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you. That was wonderful. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.